application of everything we talked about. Why read Shakespeare? I love that you phrase it that way. And I'll, I'll just tell the listener this. There's a lot of stuff you can choose to consume. But when I started reading Shakespeare, you know, the first play we read was Taming of the Shrew. And there's a scene where, um, you know, there's a, the younger sister of the, the family is like the one that all the men in the town want to pursue to hmm. marry. And so they dress up as these like fake school tutors and they go teach her fake like one is an art teacher and the other is a music teacher and they have these secret messages encoded in the music like one dude's melody spells out like you know like date me basically <laughs> that's ingenious yeah. when i tell you that scene i don't even have to tell you the title of the play but but yeah. if you had read that you know you would know oh that's taming of the shrew if i tell you two lovers who loved each other so much right but they're they're never meant to be together and they end up killing themselves at the end of the play. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. If I tell you guy kills his way to the throne, but then he finds justice and he fails. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You have so much you could choose from. I just think Shakespeare is, is some of the best literature to choose from. It's your best option because it's not only stood the test of time and well-written, but it's beautiful. It's, it's something that even Shakespeare admits in his final play is not as objectively important as the transcendental, hmm. as God's word, as things from above. He's a mere man. He is a man. Hmm. But the greatest writer. Welcome to At the Crossroads Podcast with Travis McNeely. I'm so excited to uh, introduce our guest to you here in just a moment. We're going to be talking about Shakespeare, but before we get started, uh, a couple things. Number one, um, our sponsor, one of our sponsors here, Fund of the Nations. They help individuals, organizations, and churches raise money for missions, adoptions, and nonprofits by custom designing high-quality and low-cost t-shirts and other apparel to use for fundraising. They have great custom design work and Really good customer service. Everyone wears t-shirts, so give them one that helps you accomplish your calling. So at Fund the Nations, they always say money shouldn't determine your vision, just fund it. So with no money required up front, it's a no-risk fundraiser. And if you use this promo code CROSSROADS, you can get $20 off your first order by using the code CROSSROADS uh, when you contact them. So let Fund the Nations help you fulfill your calling. And as you know, that we've been doing this podcast journey, we have many episodes that we've already had, and I'm so excited. Uh, now, if you're watching on video, you'll see I'm in a new office, so it's been an awesome uh, place and experience to, to be transitioned to this spot, and it, it looks great. Uh, and I'm excited to be in here for my first episode with Elijah. But as you as you think about um, this podcast, if it's been a benefit to you, if you've enjoyed it, if it's helped you, if it's helped others, there's a few things you can do to spread the reach of this podcast. Obviously, share it out on your social media, uh, but also subscribe to the podcast, whether it's on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, YouTube, and uh, that will make sure that you receive notifications when a new episode comes online. But also, any platform that gives ratings, please rate it. Give it a five-star rating, and that helps the visibility of it. And also, as you know, as you know, I'm unashamedly a follower of Christ, and so I want people to hear the gospel and hear uh, the truth as it relates to these different subjects we talk about. So please share it on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And any other way you can support this podcast, uh, sorry, another way you can support this podcast is any uh, items I mentioned, books, resources. I'll put affiliate links below. Uh, and if you click that link to purchase maybe the books we talk about today, that actually, that tiny bit from that will also go to support this podcast. So 
uh, would really appreciate you doing that. So thanks for listening, and we, we appreciate it. Now let's dive in. Elijah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, I'm so excited. Uh, we've been friends now for about over a year, uh, right. and you've been coming to Woodlawn uh, Baptist Church here for since January, uh, so it's literally a year now that you've been here, which is great. Uh, man, um, why don't you say a little bit about yourself and our friendship? Yeah, well, um, so I'm a business student at LSU. I'm getting an English Lit minor, and um, I love uh, you know art. I love literature. I love story, and that's kind of the first thing that we really bonded on. I mean, you know, obviously I was looking for discipleship at the time that you met me and um when we grabbed coffee uh instantly just started talking about the truman show or you know yeah um connected on 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 storytelling because storytelling is kind of what we're made of as, mm. as humans it's kind of what we um tend to do when we, when we imagine ourselves and the imagination needs some sort of a vessel to to use and stories yeah. kind of fit that bill so mm. and we talked a lot about how you know there are certain stories that we connect with um and so that's sort of our friendship has been you know obviously i'm, I'm telling you but um our, you know, we, we talk about philosophy a lot, art, literature, and how does that apply to our lives as Christians? You know, how can how can a Christian navigate not only storytelling itself, but especially in the the world that we live in with all the stories coming out? Hmm. What are mass you know me, um, hmm. media companies pushing? Hmm. Um, what agendas do they have? Right. And is it in line with scripture? With right. scripture? So yeah, so many competing stories out there, and you know, yeah, we really connected on film and movies right away, and. You know, it was a lot of fun hearing and just talking with someone engaging about this subject because, you know, it's not often people are really thinking about what's happening in film and movies where they can be just consumers, um, just amusing themselves to death. And that that that's from Neil Postman, but amusing, amuse means to not think, right? right. And we like to amuse over movies. We like to think over movies and, and film. And it's one of those areas where the engagement on it can often be really weak or even lead to slow compromise as a is it for Christians as it relates as it relates to their faith and so it's one where we're trying to be faithful to Scripture but also engage what is the world saying and what's going on and should Christians consume this or that and stories are important right the Bible's a story right from Genesis to Revelation absolutely and um, it says how things began what the problem is with man how they can be redeemed and where everything's going and stories do that you know I, I looked at in college Bible as the genesis of comedy and that's ancient Greek comedy meaning like it actually shows the best story structure of order chaos and order everything's in order in the beginning chaos enters the picture through sin and God's going to restore things back to order and you know that's a, another podcast for another time but this subject's really interesting to me and you know listen um, you took a class this past semester uh, about Shakespeare and which is really what I want to talk about today it's why I brought you on the podcast so I want to ask you this question why should we read William Shakespeare yeah, I think um, Shakespeare has has been a, made a huge impact on at least my reading life. But I want to pose the question before I even get to you know Shakespeare specifically. Uh, you just mentioned a lot of you know problems about about today. You know, I don't think that it's wrong necessarily to just want entertainment or to just want you know things that we watch just to you know amuse us. Mm -hmm. But to muse, to think, I, I see so many Christians leaving movie theaters talking about films and. Um, the, the conversations that they're having are not necessarily in line with the gospel, mm. uh, are not in line with what Jesus teaches us in the scriptures. Mm. Um, there are certain things in those movies that, uh, and, and TV shows, you could even argue books in, in, in school, yeah. um, that may have themes that completely contradict the gospel, which is like, okay, well, you know, reading is one thing, right? And, and being able to, you know, analyze those, to see those. That's a good thing for the Christian to say, I, I'm going to, you know, approach this with a, like a cautionary step, right? But um, 
my desire is for the Christian to be equipped into knowing why we have to, hmm. you know, be careful with what we watch, what we consume, and and what to look for in storytelling. Hmm. So I'll pose the question back to you: Why why do we read story at all? What's the point of narrative? Hmm. I think um, it's it's. I think it was C.S. Lewis. I might get it wrong. I know it's quoted in Gould's book here, Cultural Apologetics, but. Uh, imagination is the organ of meaning. Absolutely. And so we imagine things all the time. I mean, I, I have, you know, three boys and good night. It's like they get a little toy set and they imagine it's alive and they're fighting each other. And it's just like this whole big thing to them. And I'm just like, these are just toys as an adult. But I'm like, oh yeah, they're, you know, their kids are having a good time. And, and we love imagination and using our imagination. It's a good thing. And as Lewis said, it's the organ of meaning. And I think what he means by that is essentially is we we help conceptualize the world. It helps us to conceptualize the world using our imagination and thinking about the world we live in and bringing value to our lives, but also basing it on some sort of objective reality, right? And so um, why do why do Christians, why do people love stories? I think it's because we're storied creatures and we're in a story, I think is part of it as well. Absolutely. We desire the structure of the comedy that you just mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. Order, chaos, and we want things to be brought back to order Mm -hmm. for for any situation. Um, I love that quote. Of course, the imagination is the organ of meaning. And Gould kind of um, elaborates here on art and story. He says, art activates the imagination to awaken longing in our hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. And the imagination helps us narrate our lives, serving as a guide to explore the various facets and dimensions of our longings, aiding us in drawing connections between the art and our lives. He goes on for stories. He says, stories, especially good stories, can provide us, Tolkien argues, a means of escape, recovery, Mm -hmm. consolation. Good stories command what Tolkien calls secondary belief. We escape from our primary world and enter a secondary world through the imagination. While we are in the secondary world, we experience joy, sorrow, hope, fear, as if we were a part of the story. Of course, we're not. Hmm. When we put the book down or leave the theater, if the story has done its job, we should see reality afresh. Stories help clean our windows so that we see the familiar in its proper light as beautiful, mysterious, and sacred. And so Hmm. I think that a good story shows us reality Hmm. as it is, untainted. Uh, We just finished our Christmas season uh, at our house and watched It's a Wonderful Life. Hmm. That story always shows me certain beauties that God has afforded us in this life. Uh, that that I always leave that film feeling grateful. And by no means is it a necessary thing to consume for your sanctification, but it's a good thing to consume, hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a good point about It's a Wonderful Life. And, you know, I mean, I think about that film. I, I just watched it as well. He, If you've never watched that movie, go watch it, number one. But it, when it comes down to it, he wants to take his own life, and then he's interrupted. And in the interruption, he gets to see what life was like without him. And we don't know the impact of our lives necessarily. And yes, there's some sense, but centuries after we're gone, we might be completely forgotten. That's that's fine. We don't live for this life necessarily. But um, we do have a role today that God will reward one day. And I think there's a sense where we have a responsibility because God's given us life. And there's meaning and purpose and orientation to life that, that we should seek to fulfill for, for God's glory, but also for our good and the good of others. And I think it's a wonderful life. At the end, at the end it's so hard for me not to just tear up and just like, these people love him. But it's it's because he went to that dark place of despair and you saw the depth of the chaos. And then since essentially that order is restored there and you see yeah, things are going to be okay. You know, George doesn't have to freak out, you know. Um, right. You know, he... 
things are going to be fine. And his wife, Mary really saves the day, but it's a, it's a beautiful story. Um, and every time I see it, I mean, when I first saw it as a kid, I'm like, this is the dumbest movie ever. Why? Cause I, I just had a really horrible appetite for film and movies. And as I became an adult and you just kind of experience real life, there's a sense where there's something just beautiful about that film. Mm. You come to, to realize what really matters. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah. Shakespeare to me knows what really matters. Mm. Um, and I think that that's why he stood the test of time. Yeah. Um, that's why we still, uh, are, you know, in our public education system reluctantly teaches Shakespeare. <laughs> and it's funny that 99% of people have read Shakespeare, but couldn't tell you one thing about Shakespeare. Hmm. Um, hmm. And it is difficult to get into, certainly. And that's, I mean, hey, that's my, uh, my thoughts go out to people who are maybe intimidated by Shakespeare. I mean, the language is absolutely foreign to our <laughs> vernacular today. Yeah. But reading it, you know, and, and learning a few words um, that maybe we wouldn't say nowadays is so, once that happens, once that takes place, the meaning is so clear. Mm-hmm. And even when we don't know what certain things mean, the drama, you know, yeah. it still communicates, uh, you know, it still communicates what those characters are saying. So I, I would definitely say, despite the, the language barriers that there may be, um, the things you're talking about are, are evident in Shakespeare. And mm-hmm. I would encourage anybody to read Shakespeare. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you asked me the question, why should we read that yeah. um, author? Well, I have three reasons for you. Firstly, I do think the themes that he's talking on and his conclusions uh, for the the ones that he you know does talk about, the conclusions he does come to, they align with the Christian worldview. Yeah. So a Christian can read Shakespeare, and though there's going to be certain things that maybe we ought to avoid, right? Like maybe children shouldn't read Macbeth, right? Um, or like a, Mid- a Midsummer's Night Dream, or yeah. Um, you know, some other ones that are a little more, you know, out there. Overall, Shakespeare's writings um, are are Christian. They're absolutely not Christian in, in the way that they're, um, you know... Didactic, teaching, instructing, necessarily. They're not like, doc- like doctrinal things, you know. No character at the end of Shakespeare is going to come to Christ, come to faith in Christ, and yeah. and tell the audience to do so, right? right That's right. kind of on the nose, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, he's a secular artist, but he's writing media that is, or he's writing stories that are in line with the gospel. Yeah, in line with what we stand for, our our principles. Uh, secondly, more on on today's you know media, I think that most of the films that come out today, um, it's not just being scared of of content. It's what they're teaching us. It's it's what the characters do, and do the films endorse sinful behavior? Do the films endorse sin itself? Mm. I would absolutely say so. And if yeah. you, you know, maybe some people out there disagree with me, and and I just I just encourage you if, if you do to. To check, you know, what is the gospel saying for us to consume? Let's think about Philippians 4.8, right? We should mm-hmm. consume things that are excellent, that are true and, and good mm-hmm. um, and beautiful. And is, you know, the, the most beautiful thing is something that can be in line with the Lord, that can help us glorify the Lord. Mm-hmm. So while Shakespeare's works definitely have characters that are reprehensible, wicked, sinful, mm-hmm. um, I don't believe Shakespeare's endorsing any of their actions. And though there are gray areas... In the you know at the end of most Shakespeare's plays, characters find uh, you know justice for mm. the most part. Yeah. Um, so so that that's a good thing. I mean, there's also something to be said about his religious background itself. He Shakespeare kind of was at an interesting time in history, right after Luther. So we're talking just maybe fifty to sixty years right after Luther. Um, so the Reformation was happening, right? People were leaving the Catholic Church, and Protestantism was born at the same time that the Renaissance made way. In Europe, so you have these two opposing ideas in uh, Protestantism, right, of of a you know a God-centered worldview, and in the Renaissance of a, a humanist worldview, a hmm. man-centered worldview, um, and those those themes 
find their way into Shakespeare in a very unique way. So while Shakespeare is never going to once again come out and say, like, the Christian worldview is the objectively true worldview, he asks the question, right? He says, um, which is it going to be, right? Which makes a prosperous culture? Yeah. Um, and the third reason is that he's the greatest writer of all time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's we, we could debate that left and right, but seriously, yeah. it's history would go to say it, yeah. of the English language at least. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And we have so much of his works, obviously accessible, and then um, we would we would also probably say just so many, so many of the, I mean, you, you could probably expound on this further, but he hits different genres, you know, comedy, tragedy, and he really seems to display the true nature of the... Uh, human condition, you know, to some, to some degree for sure, because of that Christian worldview in that base, which I know we'll talk about uh, quite a bit more. Absolutely. So of course, everyone knows Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Um, that's probably the most well-known Shakespeare. I read that in a uh, freshman year, didn't remember a thing. And <laughs> I mean, except that, I mean, obviously the end, but um, I think that that's one of the most misunderstood plays out of the entire mm. canon. And, and people read that play and they think it's so romantic yeah. and I don't want to deny anybody their, um, you know, if you really think it's romantic, that's that's okay. They made a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, man, the dreamy Hollywood guy. I know right? it's so like it's so romantic. After that, there's Tell nothing I can wrong. say. I mean, against Leo, right? <laughs> but um, really, I, I was sitting in class, and uh, you know, men, you mentioned I I took a Shakespeare class um, yeah. this last semester, best class I've ever taken because oh, cool. it was just a discussion philosophy class, right? We discussed why humans do what we do, and is there any hope? <laughs> that yeah. was what we discussed. And as a Christian, you're sitting in a room full of people who probably don't know Christ. Hmm. And when they yeah. ask the question, is there any hope hmm. for us humans? And you're sitting there, and you're like, I have the answer to that question. Yeah. <laughs> but society's told me not to say anything. Yeah. Right? And so, of course, I, I've you know befriended a few people in that class, but their answers were very different from mine. Yeah. to the question. When we started Romeo and Juliet, um, my professor asked us to all, all raise our hands for the people who love the play. And so I raised my hand. And then he says, okay, put your hands down. Now if you hate the play, right, raise yeah. your hand. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, what? You, you can't raise your hand twice. I said, yes, I can. He said, well, explain yourself. And I said, well, I, I love it because it's a very beautiful, well-written play. I yeah. mean, it's th the mastery in his writing is, is phenomenal. And yeah. The way these characters interact with each other, there's beautiful poetry in the play, and it plays with a lot of really um, interesting themes mm -hmm. about about fate, about sovereignty, about um, authority, about mm -hmm. power. Yeah. Now I hate the play because on the other side of the coin, it is literally just two stupid kids. Yeah. Yeah. That is the thing that most people don't see about Romeo and Juliet. And I, either they just haven't maybe. Um, you know, matured to, to see something like that, or, or they just never thought about it too much. Uh, it's probably the latter, right? Uh, Romeo and Juliet is a, a beautiful play about two kids that should have listened to their parents hmm. um, because they're 13 and 14 in the play. And hmm. what ends up happening to them? Do we want that to happen to us? Hmm. I know it's romantic. I know it's sad. I know it's beautiful. <laughs> but in reality, yeah. right, was it good? Hmm. No, that's why it's a tragedy. Hmm. And so we ended that, that um, play... With this message, my professor says to the entire class, right, fate. It opens up with a chorus, uh, a few lines of poetry, start the play out, and tell you what's going to happen. They tell you that these lovers are going to die. And we don't believe it until it happens at the very end of the play. Yeah. Most tragic ending ever. Yeah. And boom, the play's over. Hmm. And he told us, go out into the world, go do great things, but you're not going to be able to beat fate. 
because they couldn't, right? Yeah. And so that was the, the lasting message that this secular professor gives his secular classroom about a play. What kind of a message is that, you know? Hmm. And I would ask you, I mean, do you think the world has hope? What hope does the world have to beat fate, as, as he says? Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they, they don't, one, because fate is the wrong way to think about it. So obviously you can tell from your professor he doesn't, God's not oriented in his worldview, right? right. Um, so things are not purely by chance, like he seems to be implying. Um, but number two, I mean, that's just a dead hope that doesn't fit with the way the world is, uh, who God is, and, and God is a God of hope. I think I just think of scripture, man. First, First Peter chapter one, we've been born again to a living hope. Any hope that's not rooted in the resurrection of Christ is a dead hope, you know. And so, yes, it's a tragedy in that story, um, and it's 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 almost kind of funny, like how you said, like it's just I hate it because it's stupid. They're immature kids, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, we I think we all get we all get that, and and reading it and um, agree with you to some sense where it's like, man, you just kind of wish some sense could be knocked into him a little bit, you know. Um, but you look at it, and it it truly is a tragedy, and I would say to some sense it's a maybe Shakespeare's in a sense giving a warning. I mean, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And that's what's so sad is mm. that whenever people talk about Romeo and Juliet, they only talk about Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? They they don't talk about, well, be sure that you obey your parents. It's like yeah. no one wants to talk about that. Yeah. Why? Because we are uh, we're sinful beings, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's not cool. So yeah. we shouldn't talk about it. They're people who chased after their passions and their passions killed and, and eventually end up killing both of them because one, they were they were both rebellious to their parents, right? Absolutely. And and um, maybe Shakespeare is trying to give that warning of like this is the route you're going to take. Well, this is the result. And they weren't just rebellious to their parents. In doing so, and in all the other things they did, were rebellious to God. Hmm. Yeah. Um, we can follow our carnal passions, but the world wants to keep believing that it's not going to lead to our demise, right? Yeah. Um, scripture would would beg to differ, and so would reality. So, right. um, being in that classroom was odd. Hmm. Um, and I just, uh, you know, I tried to do my best to speak truth when I could. It was pretty open, open discussion for the most part. Yeah. Um, but I, I did notice that if I, if I did get a little too, too deep in conversation, the professor would try to bring it back, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, let's talk about postmodernism. Yeah. Let's talk about one of the, the three main points of postmodernism and neo-Marxism. Yeah. It's the death of the author. Yeah. So somebody produces a work of art, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it means this. Yeah. It means this to me. Yeah. Or... She thinks it means this. Right? Mm. But what did the author mean by it? Um, what did the artist mean by it? And I'm, I, you know, I used to be on the other side of, of the fence for this argument. I used to be the individual I just described, right? Mm. Like, hey, that's a beautiful piece of art. I definitely want to hear what the artist intended, but to me, it takes on a whole new meaning. Mm. Can I do that? Mm. Can I look at Van Gogh's melancholy self-portrait and say, man, this is, man, when I'm feeling happy and joyous, I just look at this painting. It makes me feel so good and, and sunny inside. <laughs> there are objective truths. Yeah. And, and art attests to that. Mm. And Shakespeare knows this. And so being in that classroom, it was like, well, we can interpret Shakespeare however we want to. Mm. Well, according to who? I mean, there are gray areas, right? So Shakespeare does not just say, like most uh, writers in Hollywood today, yeah. this is the way it is. And if you don't think this, you're wrong. Yeah. Right? yeah. You're not a part of our society. The gray areas he does leave are not these like wishy-washy, you know, interpret it however you want. So there's two polar opposites, right? It's like, this is truth. You must accept this or you're completely, completely wrong. Of course, we're saying there is a truth, but we get it by, you know, by God. And right. we want to, in our art, steward truth, but we also want to steward discussion as well as Shakespeare does. Yeah. 
sometimes he'll like for instance we don't know if uh, in Macbeth like were the were the witches real hmm. were in Hamlet was the ghost real hmm. um, or was all of that stuff a figment of their imagination and the horrible things it led them to do yeah was that just their own doing hmm. that's a great question to ask because Shakespeare doesn't give us an answer yeah but we can come to a, a truth about reality and human nature because of that question hmm. so I'd like to before getting into the three plays we're going to discuss yeah. I want to read to you a quote from George Orwell himself. Okay. Um, he, he wrote this essay in 1947. Listen to George Orwell, who is a, a, you know, author of 1984. The morality of Shakespeare's later tragedies, such as Lear and Macbeth, is not religious in the ordinary sense, hmm. and certainly is not Christian. So I'll pause. Do you know if Orwell was a Christian? I don't believe so. I mean, he obviously lived in a culture and time where he was influenced by Christianity, but also as a time in the 20th century where he could be against it, you know? Right. So, I mean, so he was an outspoken atheistic socialist. Oh yes. Oh yeah. I knew he was a socialist. Yeah. Right. Which is really interesting because he wrote animal farm and animal farm seems to kind of show the, the dangers of going a communist socialist route to some degree. Well, and of course, 1984 does too, which is why when I finished that book, it was like, wait, he's a socialist, right? But there's this idea social socialism purports to of a utopia, which of mm. course is no place. Yeah. Um, I think, though, Animal Farm and 1984 both, you know, show his inherently anti-religious views. Yes. Like, it's the institution that he doesn't like. Mm. He is for the freedom of the self. Yeah, he's a democratic socialist. Right. So, And AOC. so I just find it interesting that Orwell is here talking about Shakespeare's morality, mm. as it is certainly not Christian when he himself doesn't know the full extent of Christianity. Mm. Uh, not only is he biased against Christianity, but he doesn't even know full Christianity itself. Right. He goes on, only two of them, Hamlet and Othello, are supposedly occurring inside the Christian era, and even in those, apart from the antics of the ghost in Hamlet, there is no indication of a next world where everything is to be put right. He goes on, hmm. we do not know a great deal about Shakespeare's religious beliefs. From the evidence of his writings, it would be difficult to prove that he had any. Now, I know that Shakespeare lived a long time ago, and obviously he came right around the Reformation. Hmm. Check out this quote from a British courtier, Sir Frederick Watson. Uh, in Watson's words, the Protestant biblical allusions in his plays, which are absolutely there, mm -hmm. yeah, regardless yeah. of what Orwell says, uh, that was carried out by, he says, quote, proving from Shakespeare's own writings that he lived and died as a true Protestant. Furthermore, he was an upstanding member in an, Ang in an Anglican church in his middle age. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just think that when you actually read the plays, you can clearly see um, the ideas of Catholicism contrasted with the ideas of Protestantism and what wins. Yeah. This quote from Orwell is troubling, though. He obviously is wrong about his religious beliefs, but let me tell you what I see in this. I see a man who has written great works, but he has anti-Christian themes all around yeah. his works. Yeah. And he hates the institution because he wants full freedom for the human desire. He yeah. wants full freedom for our human nature to run its natural course without any divine intervention. Hmm. It reminds me of Huxley. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it also reminds me of that G.K. G, uh, G. Chesterton quote you told us about, um, hell is the epitome of human freedom. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, Pete, in other words, with Chesterton, he's, you know, hell, he, it's, hell's the monument of human freedom. But in saying that, he's trying to say, like, look, man, you can you choose this. You you you're willfully rejecting God, and God has hell as a monument. It's a metaphor, right? Say, 
look, you can cho- you can choose to reject me, kind of thing. Now, obviously, that gets in the whole debate about Calvinism, Arminianism. We're not here to do that, but uh, absolutely you know, not. But, no. uh, and he's Catholic, you know, Chesterton's Catholic, but there is a lot of wisdom in some things Chesterton said, and I know controversial figures like Doug Wilson mentions things a lot about Chesterton. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But with, regarding Orwell, um, yeah, you know, it seems that he was a humanist, right? And a lot of these guys in the 20th century they're trying to reinterpret history in a lot of ways too, according to their humanist and atheistic worldview. As do people today. Yeah. As do people today. Exactly. So it's like, it's almost like he appreciates Shakespeare and he doesn't want him to be a Christian. I don't know. That's kind of how I see it a little bit. It's like, we're not going to read Christian morality into it because there's a lot of things that are really immoral that happen in Shakespeare. And obviously Shakespeare's not giving commentary on his plays, right? right. He's not like, here's why so-and-so did this. And this is my world. You know, no, Shakespeare didn't do that. He just wrote plays. Right. And so I think, that's wishful thinking on Orwell's part. Well, I think you, you really uh, said a mouthful when he said he, he doesn't want Shakespeare to be a Christian. Yeah. Um, because he knows that Shakespeare's writings are so true. Yeah. And so if he's a Christian, well, his entire worldview falls apart. And so that's that's my – this is my segue into yeah. getting into the three plays we're going to be looking at. We're going to be taking a look at Merchant of Venice, okay. Macbeth, and Shakespeare's final play, The Tempest. Okay. So Orwell claims there's no religious themes in Shakespeare. Let's talk about Merchant of Venice. Okay. Um, this is a play about – Judaism and Christianity. Okay. The, the fact that Orwell missed this is, is just shocking to me. Hmm. Uh, we start out with Antonio, uh, the merchant, um, kind of the protagonist, and he's melancholy. Um, there, you know, he's, he's in debt, and hmm. he needs help. And there's a Jewish moneylender in town who's, you know, Venice at the time was very Christian, at least, um, you know, on paper. Yeah. Uh, we go to see in the story, though, that in some ways they were a little more, um, you know, I don't want to say they were Pharisee-esque because that's more, more so the, the moneylender, but I'll get there. Though it was a Christian culture, absolutely, they, they had shortcomings. Absolutely, they, they sinned and they... Um, yeah, it's a Genesis 3 world, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. So, so what's ironic about that situation is that Shylock, the Jew, is living in this Venetian culture. And, I mean, they couldn't kick Jews out of the culture at the time, but he was very much disliked. But why did they keep him there? Well, because I think according to um, Christian like virtue and according to the law at the time, they they couldn't lend money. They needed people to lend, like like as as Shylock was like a banker, right? Yeah. And there was nothing that Shylock, you know, in his Judaism, that prevented him from doing so. Mm-hmm. That's why he was there in Venice. Mm-hmm. And so it's this very hostile um, environment that Shylock lives in. Um, and though he is, you know, a Jew, uh, he's kind of persecuted in some ways, right? Because of that. Um, there's there's a quarrel between him and Antonio, who's melancholy. He's in debt, you know. He's he's got all these ships that are. Uh, according to him, lost at sea. Mm-hmm. And Shylock lends him money. And I want to read to you. Um, check this out. Yeah. So let's take a look at the Shylock character. Um, a lot of people, especially because of critical theory today, will read Merchant of Venice and side totally with Shylock. Hmm. Obviously, it makes sense in their worldview. Yeah. According to critical theory, if somebody is oppressed, there's yeah. probably little that can make them immoral. Yeah. Right, because they're the, in that world, they're the virtuous. Exactly. Yeah, they're just oppressed and oppressor. Right. So, um, here's here's Shylock. On an aside, he's literally giving the money. This is Act Act One, Scene Three, and he, he just goes aside and says, "How like a fawning publican he looks! I hate him for he is a Christian, but more for that in low simplicity he lends out money gratis and brings down the rate of usance here with us in Venice. If I can catch him once upon the hip." I will feed fat the ancient grudge I bear him. He hates our sacred nation, and he rails. Even there were merchants, even there where merchants most do congregate. 
um, I'll, I'll stop there because you pretty much get the point. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's vehement, you know? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I sympathize with Shylock because he's living in a culture where he's not really welcome. Mm. Like, he's being used. Mm. But that doesn't change the message of the Bible. That doesn't change mm. how, how intact the gospel is. And yeah. whether or not the Christians in Venice were right or wrong, I mean... Shakespeare isn't saying that all of Christianity is wrong just yeah. because they make mistakes. Yeah, what just because yeah, just because this character is against Christianity and is I don't know the word right word's a pariah, but just someone in that right. culture who's just like despised, you know, um, and he feels his how he despised he is, you know, it doesn't necessarily make it's it's not right to say that character is rightly um, almost like refuting the Christian background and worldview, even if those Christians are hypocrites or bad Christians, right? Right. And so it's it's sad to see Orwell kind of think, using that argument, it's like, you know, you're an author, like you think you could read, but maybe that's what he wants, right? It's not just even a matter of intellect, but a matter of the will. Like he just wants it to be the case that Shakespeare not be Christian or endorsing Christianity. And and it's partially because of Shakespeare's like refusal to come out in a play and say this character was 100% right. And this character was 100% wrong. Yeah. Because that's what happens in this play. Uh, mm. What happens in, in the plot is that Shylock makes a deal with Antonio. It's a death warrant. Shylock basically says, if you can't get this money back um, on default, you owe me a pound of your flesh. <laughs> Which is, like, obviously silly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's kind of metaphorical. Um, yeah. And this is what really opened my eyes to why Shakespeare, his themes yeah. are so good. Yeah. Take the law, the Mosaic law, hmm. and then take the grace of Christ. Hmm. They're, they're, uh, you know, they're opposites in some ways because we can't fulfill the law. Right. Shylock adheres to that law. Shylock is somebody that has little to no grace. Hmm. While the culture of Venice is almost too gracious, right? Hmm. To, to, to a fault. Hmm. Um, and so there, there are these virtues being contrasted in this play. And at the end of it, what happens is due to the character Portia, who's a very um, virtuous girl and uh, ends up falling in love with Antonio's friend Bassanio. Um, and, th and they get married at the end of the play. There's a lot of dressing up in, in Shakespeare comedy. So Portia puts on uh, a suit and, and she disguises herself as a male lawyer. But she's cunning. She's clever. Yeah. She studied law and goes into the, the, the court, um, basically wins the court, uh, the, the court case for Antonio. She saves Antonio's tail once be because of you know once Antonio does not return uh, that loan. Yeah. And Shylock, of course, is playing the victim in this case. And while absolutely, I, I, you know, I sympathize with Shy Shylock on uh, many levels. Mm -hmm. We know what he's doing. We know that he's, according to this mosaic law, right? He's holding Antonio uh, accountable. Mm -hmm. Is that right or wrong when he's doing it with such hatred in his heart? Hmm. He hates him for he's a Christian, right? Yeah. And Portia gives us sense. Uh, you know, she, uh, she she makes sense out of the nonsense. She basically shows how inhumane. She reveals the big plot twist. Oh, you know, Shylock was going to you know take a pound of flesh if Antonio doesn't hmm. return on so the loan. So it's a completely unjust standard by which to make a basis for the loan. And that was what perplexed me about this play because, well, do we not have to adhere to the law? Right? Is the wicked? Um, and, and I have a, I have an answer for this. Yeah. It's that Shylock wasn't serving God. He was serving himself. That's right. That's right. Shylock, if he was serving God, would love his enemies. Hmm. But unfortunately, hmm. it's just not ingrained in Shylock. Yeah. Maybe people have told him. Maybe people have been, you know, Christians have been awful yeah. to him. And look, the, uh, the book of Proverbs says a lot about lending money, and it talks about, you know, and the law does too, 
Um, but it's 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 interesting to see him even to some degree. It seems like not following the just standards laid down in the Mosaic Law, but even um, perverting it and twisting it to his own ends. Right? You're going to have to give me a pound of flesh, like over lending. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a really biblical, you know, even something Moses would be okay with. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in the in the case of Shylock, um, he ends up losing, and yeah. he has to give fifty percent of his wealth to the state and fifty percent to Antonio. And uh, you know. One could say justice served, hmm. but most of the people in my class disagreed. Mm-hmm. And what was so interesting is that they even disagreed and said Shylock was in the right and he should have won the case mm-hmm. after hearing this. Let me read this monologue to you. This is from Portia pleading to the jury. She's talking to Shylock, right? She says, do you confess the bond to Antonio? I do. And then she moves to Shylock. Then must the Jew be merciful. And Shylock says, on what compulsion must I? Tell me that. She says, the quality of mercy is not strained or compelled. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. Hmm. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice, therefore Jew. And of course, throughout the play, everybody calls Shylock Jew. I mean, there you clearly see there's anti-Semitism, so Shylock is being wronged. But does that make his hatred? Justified. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's hmm. the question Shakespeare asks us. And, Look, she's she's talking about God here. She's talking about objective good and evil. Yeah. And my class said Shylock was still in the right after hearing even that. And mm. of course I was like, well, you know, um, I don't think that what Antonio or any of the other Christians did was right. People should not take advantage of Shylock. Right. Right. People should have compassion and love him as mm-hmm. Christ commands us to love our enemies. But I disagree. I, I don't think that Shylock should have done what he did. Yeah. I don't sympathize with him when he's being so hateful. Mm. Right. Yeah. And that, that play ends where uh, Bassanio, Portia's uh, love, uh, kind of makes a like a, a gaffe, and um, I think he loses the ring hmm. that they have um, with uh, you know their wedding. It's it's a huge symbol throughout the play. Bassanio's kind of a buffoon, hmm. and Portia has every right to leave him after that, due just due to the nature. Like they, they weren't fully married yet, and they were just yeah. engaged. She chooses not to. Portia's the character throughout this play that continues to show grace and mercy. And hmm. she, I mean, she's kind of, a, in some ways, exemplifying what it means to be Christ-like. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it seems like as we, as we analyze Shakespeare here, stepping out big picture, looking at this, this, narr- this story, this narrative, it's law versus mercy and grace, what it comes down to. And how do you not sit here and say Shakespeare is a Christian? How do you not, you know, how do you not sit here and say, I mean, obviously, look at the themes, look at who we're talking about, what's going on. Well, and there are characters throughout Shakespeare, maybe that, um, you know, some people would say maybe he's not a Christian because he does appeal to certain characters that believe in pagan gods. Some characters are, you know, uh, homosexual tendencies. But Mm -hmm. in the end, despite despite those characters and despite um, other maybe themes that some people would argue are against the Christian worldview, Mm -hmm. I see an overwhelming evidence in this play alone but especially throughout the whole canon, that maybe Shakespeare was a Christian. Yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me of the book of James where it says mercy triumphs over judgment. 
I think, in as it relates to this narrative, um, I think one of the beauties of it is mercy and, mm. and grace. And, you know, we don't see a lot of that in stories today. You know, not to, I, I, we'll stay on Shakespeare, but, you know, as we look back to Shakespeare, why should Christians read Shakespeare? I think, in a, in a big way, it highlights these biblical themes in the lives and narratives of, of, of stories of people that I think can be something we reflect upon. And, and really, as Tolkien said in that quote that Paul had, they're secondary narratives, they're secondary worlds. We come out of that book we read, or that play we watch, or that movie we watch, and then we're back in reality, right? We put the book down, we're sitting at our bedside or table side, we've walked out of the theater, and we reflect on it, you know? And I think there's something where we do some self-reflection in our own lives. I really like this character, I really like that, you know, or like your class discussion, well, Shylock's the guy we're going to stand up for, like, oh, not, not, not really, right? And so what are you guys all doing? You're bringing things to bear in reality, in objective, objective reality. And I think there's something about that, how we can use and, and see stories as so beneficial for us, and we need good stories, and we don't have them today. And so I, I think the value in, in reading this narrative um, is seeing the law contrast with, with mercy. And I do want to say, we do have good stories today, maybe every now and then, right? Maybe <laughs> once a year. <laughs> um, but in the end, what has stood the test of, of 500 years? Yes. Yeah, there's a reason why people love Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why people still read Merchant of Venice. Yeah, um, let me read this quote from Portia. She says in Merchant of Venice, "The devil can cite scripture for his purpose. An evil soul producing holy witness is like a villain with a smiling cheek, a goodly apple rotten at the heart. Oh, what a goodly outside falsehood!" Hmm. I mean, we talked about this, but it reminds me of um, Satan trying to use scripture to tempt Jesus. Yeah, yeah, he. He says, hey, why don't you turn these stones to bread, right? And he, he talks about that. Actually, I, I don't remember if he quotes scripture there. But I know he quotes scripture for sure um, when he says, oh, the scriptures say the, the angels, will, uh, God will command his angels concerning you. He won't let your foot hit a stone, you know, quoting like Psalm 90. And what does Jesus do? He uses scripture right back at him, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which so. is what we need to do as, as, as Christians when we read secular stories like this, um, mm-hmm. especially with children. And I think that you show any child Shylock's actions – once they know the word of God, I mean, the law of God is written on all of our hearts, right? But they can clearly see what Shakespeare is doing here. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing here is he's asking the question, what is good? What is evil? Mm-hmm. How do we find out? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so speaking of evil, um, obviously, one of the things the Bible shows us, and it's undeniable, despite many people's attempts at trying to disprove this or ignore it, mm-hmm. is that fundamentally, Men, you know, men are depraved. Um, yeah, absolutely. All... Malcolm Muggeridge once said that um, the most intellectually resisted fact, but undeniable, and it's sorry, empirically ver- verifiable and intellectually resisted fact is the depravity of man. Right. But all you have to do is come, like, watch my kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. I was uh, I was at your house yesterday, and your yeah. kids were like, man. I gotta love him, right? But (laughs) you know, I mean, it's like some of those people who say mankind's generally good have never raised or worked with kids. I mean, it's like no, we're like selfish at our core. I mean, it's it's like Vody Bauckham says they're they're vipers and diapers, you know, kind of thing. Hmm. It's like yes, they're sweet, they're cute, and to some degree innocent, but then they they lie, Hmm. they fight, they scream, you know, all these kind of things. And why? It's in our nature. We're selfish at our core, and I think there's some sense where. Uh, you know, obviously I think some of these narratives have lasted because it talks about the reality of those things in us and the reality of, you know, 
mankind. I mean, you're thinking of Shylock and all these guys. Like these re- the reality of these t- these tensions and this conflict that's so real. And while there might be some make believe conflict with with Thanos coming out of nowhere to wipe out <laughs> half the population, um, you know, yeah, I could see that for sure. But there's something I don't know more real if that makes sense about Shakespeare that really hits on the core of how people feel and what's going on in their heart, but also in their relationships Absolutely. and their life. So it's just undeniable. I mean, you know, with your children, like as sweet as they can be, I look at them and I'm like, man, like that was me, you know, <laughs> that was me saying like, you know, mom said no cookie jar, but I want cookie jar. Right. Yeah. So it's, um, what's interesting though in Macbeth is that we see the evil of man on display in conjunction with mm. man's desire for justice. Mm. And so that's kind of this warring thing mm. internally with every single human being. We do have a deep desire for justice, right? That's when we, right. When we see the child molester and, and, we, and we catch that person, yeah. we want that person to be brought to justice. Right. But here's the problem with, with total justice, with absolute justice, is that under God's law, we're all culpable. It's as, as Vodi says. The problem mm-hmm. is that if justice is brought, we die. Yeah, right? and so that's of course why we need Christ to redeem mm-hmm. us, to sanctify right. us, and to to make us righteous mm. as we as we should have been before the fall. Yeah, if we all want justice today, you know, well, we deserve death. Justice says we've sinned, and sin brings condemnation. Condemnation's death. And so, uh, obviously, if we're in Christ, He was our sacrifice in our place, our substitute. But apart from Christ, people calling for justice don't realize they, they all think the problem's outside of themselves. <laughs> And that's the thing. The problem's not outside of themselves. It's within their own heart. And I think, like you've, like you've been talking about, Shakespeare is, a, is honest about the human condition and the human heart. And I think we see this in, in Macbeth, like you're saying, like this desire for justice. And, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say about Macbeth and how that reveals that. Right. And so what happens in Macbeth, right? Um, these three crazy witches start the play and they open it and they have all these chants. And they, they tell Macbeth, you're going to become the king of Scotland. Um, whether or not they actually cast magic, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of this is Macbeth hears those words. He goes to the, the camp um, where the soldiers are, right? Mm-hmm. He's promoted. Hmm. He's promoted after the witches tell him what they told him. And mm-hmm. so he starts to get this inkling, oh, may- maybe it, it was true. Yeah. What does he do? King Duncan and a few other noblemen come and stay over at his castle, murders him in the night. And as the play goes on, he, he's on a murder spree. Um, not, you know, instantly, like, you know, lo- he just loves killing people. Yeah. Of course not, right? Yeah. We see Macbeth's, um, you know, most pure and raw self when he, you know, right after he murders Duncan. The, the, the shame, the guilt that he feels, this mm. burden that lies on him is evident throughout the entire play as he kills person to person to person. He not, he not, only, he not only betrays his king, he betrays his best friend, and he betrays uh, one of his... Uh, compatriots um he he murders his wife and and son Hmm. little boy yeah in the end while Macbeth is king Macduff that individual whose whose family is now dead due to the hands of Macbeth comes and and takes revenge Hmm. Uh, Macbeth before this goes and seeks like solace from the witches like please tell me like am I going to remain king right because he's He's powerless. Essentially, mm. he's a man that has this ambition for power. He wants and, and, and has this greed. He seeks power. Yet, he's so he's so powerless in the grand scheme of things that he has to go to a bunch of crazy witches and say, hey, am I good? <laughs> yeah. Am, am I okay to... Yeah. Do I have to kill anyone else? Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know? And uh, they're like, well, you're good, right? I mean, you know, you're just going to die by the hands of somebody who uh, is not... Well, 
how do they phrase it? And I, I know I have the quote somewhere, but yeah. let me just let me just butcher yeah. it here for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he butchers people. <laughs> right, right. Um, basically, they say that anybody born of woman, um, that's that's the phrase used. Here's mm. the irony: hmm. uh, Macduff is is a C-section baby. Oh really? Shakespeare plays a, a funny little gag. He's like, "Well, once Macbeth hears that Macduff is from cesarean birth, he's yeah. like, oh, 'Oh, I'm dead. Yeah. He's like, I'm toast.' You know." And then the final battle commences, and, and Macbeth is slain. Yeah. And so we see this man that that um, you know reached great heights unjustly. Hmm. So something that uh, Macbeth talks about uh, is is femininity and marriage in the character of Lady Macbeth. This is one of the most feared characters in all of Shakespeare, or at least just. She, she seems like somebody that you don't really want to be around or be married to. Um, <laughs> let me let me uh, read to you what is written in Echoes of Eden. You know, you told me about this book hmm. um, written by Bars. Yeah, and excellent book. Wonderful. Because, I mean, what is he talking about? He's talking about how after the fall, you know, we once had utopia. Mm-hmm. And, and now there are just like glimpses of it here and there. Yeah. Because we're made in God's image still. Despite yeah, we, our sin. we once had paradise. We lost paradise. And we long for paradise to be regained. Absolutely. Check this out. Um this is him on uh, some, some Macbeth soliloquies here. This is uh, Lady Macbeth, who in some ways in the beginning of the play is more murderous and wicked than Macbeth himself. Like Macbeth has this prophecy put on him, whether or not it's legitimate, tells his wife about it, he confides, and of course, what does she say? Absolutely. You must kill the king, right? And so this is her um, in, in a very, very wicked uh, speech come you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts unsex me here what is she saying there she's saying that in this feminine grace right that most women possessed in that time period um she she doesn't want that she she doesn't want any compassion whatsoever that Hmm. will hinder her from helping her husband accomplish this mission Hmm. to achieve the throne yeah and i've heard a lot of um i've heard quite a few like Shakespearean historians say, well, you know, Lady Macbeth is just, she's supporting her husband. Um, she's actually trying to help him. She's virtuous because she doesn't want the throne for herself, right? She yeah. It's not that she wants to be queen. She just wants her husband to be king. So she's <laughs> yeah. just being a good wife by helping him. Okay, she's being a good wife. Sure, let's keep going. And she says, fill me to the spirits. Fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood. Stop up the access and passage to remorse that no compunctions, visitings of nature, compunctious visitings of nature, shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. She says, come to my woman's breasts and take my milk for gall. What an awful image Hmm. Like that this woman wants no human part of her earlier in the play. She says, remove from me the milk of human kindness. Hmm. Um, You know, we see, you know, monologues like this in Macbeth, but then we see the other side of these characters as the play continues and as the stakes grow higher and higher, the death toll is higher. Hmm. Um, listen to Macbeth as he can't even say the word amen. Hmm. One cried, God bless us and amen. The other, as they had seen me with these hangmen's hands, listening their fear, I could not say amen when they did say, God bless us. And Lady, Lady Macbeth says, consider it not so deeply. Right, nonchalant. Yeah. It's whatever. Don't think about it. But yeah. Macbeth says, "But wherefore could I not pronounce Amen? I had most need of blessing and Amen stuck in my throat." Hmm. Um, it, it goes on. You know, Macbeth kind of desires rest. Hmm. He's he's in this state of unrest ever since um, he murders Duncan 
of the king, right? His hands are covered in blood, which is incredibly symbolic, right? Yeah. He says, Methought I heard a a voice cry, sleep no more. Macbeth does murder sleep. And he goes on, the innocent sleep, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. And he now is describing this like yearning for sleep that he has to just Mm. finally rest after this Mm. um, chaos he's, he's created. Wow. The death of each day's life, sore labor's bath, balm of hurt minds, great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? Hmm. No. This my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incardinine, making the green one red. Wow. And, I mean, it's it's incredibly poetic. Like, Shakespeare yeah. is a wonderful writer. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's a reason I say I think he's the greatest writer, period. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when, when I read these plays, and especially in the classroom setting I was in, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. right. I yeah. mean, it's, you know, there's no rest for the wicked. So, hmm. um, and and unfortunately, when you, you know, thinking about it from an apologetic standpoint from, from Greg Bonson, and you're like approaching art from a certain worldview, hmm. you may not see the same things. I mean, if you truly do believe that men and women are different just because of societal barriers, mm-hmm. you're not going to read the same play that we're reading. That yeah. We're not going to read the same play because... According to you, the only reason Lady Macbeth is the way she is is because of an institution, right? But not because of what's inside. It goes back to what you said, right? Yeah. Is the problem on the inside or the outside? And I think Shakespeare clearly shows us the problems on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about, I mean, just the idea of guilt, blood on their hands. You know, um, that that imagery of wanting to be washed, wanting it off. Right. You know, it's like that's clearly. Not just, I mean, yes, it's Christian. It's a Christian worldview, but it, I think it shows the truthfulness even of the Christian worldview because people who have committed crimes like that, even if they've never heard the gospel, like I, there's a story of a tribe of, I forget what, what the tribe was, like a tribe that, I mean, remote tribe. And the man had, um, his wife had been like kidnapped from him. And so he goes to rescue her from this other tribe, kills the man who kidnaps his wife, gets his wife back. But he's like haunted by the fact that he murdered someone, even though he had never heard a law, the law of God ever say you shall not murder. And he used this imagery of going to the river and trying to wash the blood off his hands when he told the missionaries this. He's like, I could, it's like I couldn't get it off my hands. Why? Right. The law of God's written on every man's heart. And it's so powerful because Macbeth really draws that out that while he might have thought this was a good route for him to go to achieve power and what he wanted – it ends up ruining him in the end and killing him in the end. And it's just a such a powerful picture, I think, of actually justice ultimately coming someone's way um, because God is sovereign over, over all things. Um, but also, um, you know, you reap what you sow. And I think we see that big time in Macbeth. I love it. I yeah. love it. You mentioned blood. You mentioned washing. And I was just thinking about um, Cowper's hymn, you know. Um, What's that? Uh there is a fountain filled with blood. Oh, yes. Um, lose yeah. all their guilty stains. And there's a scene, of course, when Lady Macbeth, who is like, oh, she's evil. She would never, you know, you'd never see a good bone in her body. Well, she sleepwalks, and due to the guilt, she's like walking in front of this, um, you know, these people in her castle, right? Mm-hmm. And she says, dreaming of the yeah, blood in her hands. Yeah. Out, damned spot. Hmm. And she's, she feels the curse, right? She feels the damnation. And you can't help but think, well, how wrong was I? I mean, she is human. <laughs> you think yeah. she's inhuman at the beginning of the play. Yeah. But she ends up taking her own life. Hmm. I mean, that's really where... Um, she felt condemned. Yes. Yeah. It can lead 
us humans, we're, we're just so weak, yeah. and that's uh, we, we need to be delivered, hmm. right? Now, of course, you can read Macbeth, and you can totally miss all of this, but as I established, it's it's because you approach it with a completely different worldview, right. as Orwell did. Right, right. Right. Um, let me let me finish on Macbeth. Yeah. You know, you and I, we, we like to talk about philosophy. We like to talk about worldview because it's good for the sake of apologetics, mm-hmm. um, how we can you know reach the masses. Macbeth ends the play in a in a really unusual state, um, but it's it totally figures for his actions because of the, the the chaos and the pain that he has caused, all because of selfish gain. He has no choice but to resort to nihilism. Hmm. This is what Macbeth says. He's just informed that that Lady Macbeth, the queen, has taken her own life. The queen, my lord, is dead. He says. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Creeps in this petty place from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Hmm. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, my question to Macbeth is this. If that's true, would he have tried to gain power? If life signifies nothing, why did he want the power and the throne? Mm. What fulfillment could he have garnered from that if life signifies nothing? Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, if life signified uh, nothing, it was then. Then why didn't he just you know kill himself at the beginning of the play? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, that's nihilism, right? Um, you know, I do think of true nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. I do think of uh, Ecclesiastes, you know, Song of so- or Solomon, uh, the preacher in there. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's just a chasing after the wind. There's nothing new under the sun. And he goes through all these different things about life. And then he ends says, fear God, keep his commandments. This is what life's all about. Mm, right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think, you know, and re- re- help me remember for Macbeth there, he's saying that you, you said after his wife. Right, yeah, right yeah. after he heard the news. So he hears the news, and of course he's in despair. He's committed so many things. He's got blood on his hands. He's guilty. And I think sin leads you to despair. And so he's at a place of ultimate despair where he's like, this is all vain and meaningless. And there's a sense where not all of his life, but what he's done has caused that. You know, sin, sin takes you further than you want to go, makes you pay more than you ever wanted to pay, and makes you stay longer than you ever wanted to stay. Right. Sin is so damaging. And we see the effects of sin on his own mind and conscience, and it's ruined him. He's lacked sleep. I mean, he's just not at rest. He longs for rest. And the only thing that can bring him rest is, is Christ. And, of course, he's not giving a gospel call here. I get that. But we see the human nature here. When we chase after sinful things, what it does to us. And I think there's a, there's a tragedy to that. That's a real tragedy. And that's what I think Shakespeare is really trying to point out, the, the great tragedy of the weight of guilt. And, but the necessity for justice. Absolutely. I think Shakespeare understands the human condition more than any any writer. I yeah. mean, you could even... Uh, because it's extremities, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there are Macbeths in this world, in the workplace, right? Mm-hmm. They Macbeth their way to CEO. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But they're not slaughtering, like, 
their you know predecessor's wife and kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right now, of course, I mean there are atrocities that happen every day, you mm-hmm. know, all over the world. But but this is this extremity shows us the human condition. It, it it takes humans and just cracks them open to see all the ugly insides that that make us who we are and why we need somebody to deliver us from that. What um really fascinates me about Shakespeare, and this is something about content in general. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my mother has. Um, helped me so much and, and just um, I, I look up to my mom and, and how she approaches art. Um, I love the way my mother views art. So she's influenced me in that way. But, you know, as we'd grow up, maybe there was some sort of a, you know, reluctance to, to watch things that were, uh, and I'm not talking about like eight years old. I'm talking like when I was in my teen years, you know, mm-hmm. we, we didn't watch, um, you know, too much stuff. I've never been a huge fan of the horror genre, even though there are a lot of horror films that I'm a, I think are wonderful movies, you know, mm-hmm. um, that talk about truths, right? Yeah. Frankenstein being one. Mm-hmm. But that being said, in Macbeth, in all of Shakespeare, there are awful atrocities on display. And, you know, something my mom would say, I just can hear her saying, like, oh, that's awful, you know? Mm. And she's right. I mean, yeah. it is awful. But my question to, you know, us Christians is, is, is the story, like, like the actual happenings, the plot, awful? Or is is the play itself awful? And, and of course, I, I would argue that really the awfulness about it comes from these character motivations and, hmm. and the plot. But but the play is, is showing us a truth, hmm. and we should absolutely approach it with you know reverence, and uh, we shouldn't just talk about it nonchalantly, especially with children. Like right. you know, your, your son and I have talked a lot about literature. There are certain ways to approach literature as a Christian to understand this is what Jesus would say about what these characters are doing. Hmm. It's pretty amazing about all that you just said there. Um, it it teaches and informs us. You know, um, you know, you talked about your mother having influence on you. You see the horror of things, and I think we have to see that. It's kind of like we talked about in the beginning. We can't just be amused by things. We must muse and think over things. These things are shaping us, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. You know, and so I think there's a, there's a there's a great benefit to taking in things. Um, with a perspective of really saying, okay, what what is the content of this? What's happening in this story? What's happening in this narrative? And not that we're saying, how do I apply this to my life? But, I don't know, we reflect on it, and we see the evil um, that's happening in these narratives. And it's real evil, but there's a basis for why it's evil, and we, we, should, we should think about that. Right. And so the final play that I'll get to is, is Tempest. Um, this is Shakespeare's last play mm-hmm. before he retires. Um, and in The Tempest, the Duke of Milan is usurped by his brother, so it, it takes a kind of a different direction than Hamlet. Um, he escapes. He's exiled um, before they can kill him to some unnamed Mediterranean island with his daughter, who at the time was like an infant. So this, this girl is raised on an island. She, she's never seen anybody other than her father. Now, his name is Prospero. Yeah. His brother, the current Duke of Milan, the wrongful Duke of Milan, is Antonio. Um, his daughter is Miranda. And the story starts... When Antonio and some, some other, like the King of Naples, um, and, and a few other individuals are at sea, and uh, a tempest comes, and they're shipwrecked. The tempest was cast by Prospero. Prospero is a warlock. He uses magic. And what's mm. really interesting about this play is though Shakespeare has toyed around with like like fantasy in previous plays, such as The Witches and Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet's idea of fate, you know, star-crossed lovers, yeah. um, this play is really unique. Because there's a fairy character, there's a character named Caliban who's like um, a deformed, you know, human uh, who's mm. a, a slave uh, to Prospero. Prospero plays a, a very important role in this play. I mean, not only as the protagonist, but he's like a prominent figure 
despite mm-hmm. his exile. He casts this tempest. The group is separated. Um, the king of Naples' son meets Miranda. He's, he's separated from the, the group, and they fall in love. Hmm. And uh, the three of them are, are together. Um, he gets the fairy to do his bidding, uh, Prospero, and basically lead all the, the group to him. Um, when he sees these men that wronged him, you know, 10 or so years, I mean, 20 or so years ago, um, what does he do? He decides to give them grace. Hmm. He decides, we, you know, most other Shakespeare characters would just lay on him, yeah. right? Yeah. Use the magic, you know? Yeah. But Prospero makes a decision that kind of confuses the world. And boy, did it sure confuse my classroom. I mean, they called that, and this is true. I mean, the play is anticlimactic, but they, they called it anticlimactic because they didn't understand the ending. They were like confused, like, why would he do that? It makes no sense. Hmm. Um, now, of course, he's a little more of a, you know, uh, grumpy old old guy in the beginning of the the play than I give him credit for. I mean, I, I sympathize with him just because of what he did. I honor him for that as a yeah. character. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people maybe dislike the character of Prospero. Like they mm. think he's a tyrant. Hmm. Right? We're going back to the oppressor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but whether or not they dislike or, or like Prospero is irrelevant to the fact that the thing he did to choose to say, you know, you deserve this, right? But I'm going to let you walk free as I take my my proper role as Duke of Milan back. Hmm. I bring my daughter, her new husband there. Hmm. I'm going to let you go free. Wow. That's a beautiful thing Hmm. that, you know, if we cling to that, which is, of course, only from Christ. I mean, we have no no bone in our body would would do that Hmm. without the help of of God. Yeah. That is how we can have a prosperous culture. That Hmm. is how we can, you know, we can lead to, quote unquote, utopia. Yeah. Not on earth, but of course the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that. It's like, um, the whole image of the tyrant. And it seems like his character develops over time as it hits the very end. And then you, like you said, it's anticlimactic to them. Um, one thing you talked to me about before we did the podcast too, I want to, I want to draw this out of you was, um, was the timeline of Shakespeare's works. The Tempest falls at the very end, right? It's his, you're, you told me it's his last work. Is that correct? That yes. he wrote? And so I think there's something important about, the contextual setting that Shakespeare's even writing this play and then you hit the end of the play and it seems anticlimactic. Why, why was it anticlimactic again? And I think you said it had a lot to do with, um, redemption. He's trying to show redemption and grace in a way that's unexpected. And does this relate to his life in any way? Absolutely. And so I want to talk about Shakespeare, the man, um, not a lot is known about his personal life, Yeah. but we do know that he had, um, some daughters and, um, yeah, we see, his characters change as he grows older. Mm-hmm. Um, Lear is also um, one of the later tragedies. And in King Lear, the whole thing is about fatherhood and bastardom and how should a father, um, you know, raise his, his kids. He's got three daughters. Mm-hmm. Two of them kind of go by, the, you know, just do whatever he says, despite his um, immorality. And his youngest daughter rebels. Mm. And in the end of the play, you know what happens? They're all they all die. the The two sisters end up, you know, imploding on their own uh, for for certain reasons. One was virtuous, one was not. But Lear himself, you know, has this immense regret because of how he treated his youngest daughter Cordelia. Hmm. Um, you know, Cordelia uh, is is uh, banished by Lear because she won't comply with Lear's kind of antics and his immorality. Um, and at the end of the play, 
Cordelia's life is taken by the opposing war forces, and so Lear has no, no choice but to, to mourn, and he dies in his mourning. Wow. Shakespeare wrote that at the time when he had daughters himself. He's writing Prospero. Prospero has a daughter, and there's a an utter maturity that we see in Shakespeare's latter plays versus a play like, you know, uh, Taming of the Shrew or Much Do About Nothing or even Romeo and Juliet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Prospero really could have done anything he wanted to to those guys, and he could have, you know, wrath. He chooses instead to relinquish his magic powers. He says, "You know, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I've, I'm done." He hmm. breaks his staff, drowns his book, and uh, he sets him free. Hmm. So it's anticlimactic, of course, just because of that. Um, they, they just don't understand how a man could do such a thing. Hmm. But it's even deeper than that. See, Shakespeare wrote this play as his last play, um, with some double entendre and, and some kind of, you know, I guess hidden things about it that most people won't recognize. But of course, if, if you know Shakespeare, it's like. Oh my goodness, this is crazy. Let me read this to you. So this is Prospero. And with his magic, he, he creates these like stories. Our revels are now ended, uh, meaning revels like entertainment. He says, these, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself... Yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. Hmm. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. Rack meaning like a rack of clouds, right? He says, we are such stuff as dreams are made on. And our little life is rounded Hmm. with sleep. Hmm. Now you mentioned Ecclesiastes. And here Prospero is talking about vanity in a different way. Hmm. Um, I think the point of of the end of this play in the tempest this is before he makes you know he he has the final kind of forgiveness scene right yeah he's realized what matters hmm. in life i mean he could continue to harbor you know um bitterness towards these men who've wronged him his own brother right yeah but he chooses not to hmm. and who knows maybe there are real life analogies maybe there are men that shakespeare feels the same way about but this this uh monologue that i just read it is so um, beautiful hmm. how Shakespeare writes this about himself. I mean, hmm. look what he's saying. He's talking about these are actors, right? Um, they're all spirits. They're melted into air. Our, our entertainment is over, hmm. right? He, he says, the great globe itself shall dissolve. Hmm. Where was Shakespeare's theater? What was it called? The globe. Hmm. So this is this is a clear double entendre. Yeah, yeah. And he's saying like, look, I mean, the, the, the worlds that I've created, they're alive for a minute, right? But, but then they're gone. Hmm. And in the end, I guess... He's not saying that everything was in vain for right. his career. Yeah, he's not saying that. Yeah. And I, I hear a man who's reckoning his work and his life in its proper place. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I do. Yeah. And, and same thing for, for stuff I've done. I mean, in the end, there's nothing that we can do that will stand the test of eternity, right? Hmm. Yeah. It's it's like C.S. Lewis said, all that is not eternal is eternally useless. And so he's like looking at, at what he's done. And I think while there might be some sense of pride in it, yet there's something that's so little the same time does that make sense absolutely in light of all things which once again like the grace so so recognizing that truth is something the world doesn't understand because they have no hope for eternity they have no hope for the Mm. transcendental even though they yearn for it yeah and that's why i think a lot of people don't like prospero i mean maybe they try to tie his character with some colonialist like (laughs) which is like good like i just don't see a white male christian you know exactly right you know um not a Christian, a warlock even yeah, still, warlock, but no, he's right? a Christian, right? Yeah. So, 
You see, he Shakespeare ends the play uh, with an epilogue, and he doesn't do this often. Um, but Prospero is the only character on stage. He forgives everybody. Stage is emptied, and then he just stands there alone. This is Shakespeare's last play of his all of his uh, thirty-eight plays. So Prospero is talking to the audience and says, "Now my charms are all overthrown." You know, he broke his staff. Well, Shakespeare broke his pen, right? Mm. So it's it's over. He wow. drowned his book. Shakespeare drowned his book. He says. What strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true, I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples, let me not, since I have my dukedom God, and pardoned the deceiver dwell in this bare island by your spell. But release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. What is he saying? He's asking the audience to release him. He's hmm. recognized that, look, of all the plays I've written, which he never really saw how impactful his plays were in his lifetime, he just recognizes that in the end, I mean, it will all blow away like dust, right? Mm. All is vanity if we're not honoring the Lord. Mm. And he asked the audience to release him from this chain now that, you know, he's broken the staff. I've entertained you. I've done this work. I'm done. Yeah. Let me go. It's a beautiful ending to, to a career. Yeah, I, I really, as I reflect on this conversation, I just think about there's a, a thousand reasons to read Shakespeare just about. I mean, just there's so much there. There's so much content. He had so many plays. He hits the end of his life, and it's a beautiful thing. And at the same time, um, why has it lasted so long? Why has he lasted so long? It's kind of the big question. Like you got, We asked the question at the beginning, why should we read Shakespeare? And really, we find ourselves in this podcast, the kind of theme of this podcast, we're at the crossroad. We kind of hit this place where it's like, okay, let's make a decision. Am I going to um, actually take Elijah up on his challenge? You know, hey, um, okay, you just told, gave me some reasons why I read Shakespeare. There's no way we could have done this podcast and been comprehensive. Like, we're kind of giving a super sky-high view of everything. And so maybe help the listeners just kind of bring things back to them. And if you're to talk to someone and try to convince them, hey, here, here's some steps you could take. And but here's here's some of the why. I talked about some of the why, but bring it in. Offer some resources. Just tell us some of your thoughts uh, in application of everything we talked about. Why read Shakespeare? I love that you phrase it that way. And I'll, I'll just tell the listener this. I know that um, you know there's a lot of stuff you can choose to consume. But when I started reading Shakespeare, you know, the first play we read was Taming of the Shrew, and there's a scene where um, you know there's a the younger sister of the, the family is like the one that all the men in the town want to pursue to hmm. marry. Hmm. And so they dress up as these like fake school tutors and they go teach her fake, like one is an art teacher and the other is a music teacher. And they have these secret messages encoded in the music. Like one dude's melody spells out like, you know, like date me basically. <laughs> That's ingenious. Yeah. When I tell you that scene, I don't even have to tell you the title of the play. But but yeah. if you had read that, you know, you would know, oh, that's Taming of the Shrew. If I tell you two lovers who love each other so much, right, but they're they're never meant to be together and they end up killing themselves at the end of the play. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. If I tell you guy kills his way to the throne, but then he finds justice and he fails. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You have so much you could choose from. And I just think Shakespeare is, is some of the best literature to choose from. It's your best option because it's not only stood the test of time and well-written, but it's beautiful. Hmm. Man, this, this is absolutely in line with my Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. It, it's maturing. It's, it's something that even Shakespeare admits in his final play is not as objectively important as the transcendental, hmm. as God's word, as, as things from above. 
Hmm. He recognizes this this humility he has, like the the limitations of his own writings. Right, he cannot answer every question on the planet. He's a mere man. He is a man, hmm. but the greatest writer. Hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. And it, and look, as as such a great writer, I think um, we've we've drawn it out so much, which has been really good. Um, I think you know writers today, even if someone's listening, they're they're writers or they're desirous to make film or. You know, one of the things we bemoan the most today is, man, there's one, a lot of immoral content that's not, you know, it's beyond just like, okay, like obviously Shakespeare has immoral things happen in his play, this story, but there's a sense where it's like glorifying the immoral, where it's like, this is just sickening. I don't even want to fill my mind with this junk, you know? And it's like, where's the good art? You know, and then mm-hmm. Christians try to make really good art and it's like, wow, that art's horrible. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's like, where's the good art, you know? And I think we long for that because our culture is just shoving their agenda down our throat and we just, you know, we want to be entertained in a in a sense, and that's not always a good thing. But sometimes it's fine. Leisure's okay. Um, but it's like, if there's a way that can really stir our affections, and as we talked about in the beginning, imagination's organ of meaning, and really helping us to better understand our place in the world. We do that through story. You know, the scripture story. Scripture, I think, does a really good job. Of course, it's scripture um, describing our condition. And the fact that Shakespeare will line up his plays that way says, you know, if Shakespeare could have done it back then, and he has stood the test of time, why aren't Christians doing it today? Why aren't Christians writing awesome stories that are that are telling that are being told to the general public? Um, I think that's a big question to be asked, and and I think part in part the church has kind of abandoned the culture in a way. They've kind of like, hey, let's hide in our bunker, let's not engage the culture, let's not create, be creative you know, and, and engage these things on the level of beauty. We want to engage on reason and logic and truth. Yes, we always should be doing that. We want to engage on the level of morality. We want to be good. We want to help orphans and widows. Yes, do that. But we should also seek to engage the arts and beauty. And, you know, Francis Schaeffer, you know, we talked about him before. I mean, it, there's a sense where his his teaching, his worldview, and the way that he described the history of ideas through his How Should We Then Live, you know, it's like that has been super helpful in shaping me to think, Ideas have consequences, and ideas are transmitted through art, and we should we should engage the arts. Christians should be captain of the arts, the best and the best of the arts, because we have the ultimate artist, God himself. Well, we once were. I mean, the arts and the sciences wouldn't be what they are today if it weren't for this desire to, you know, yearn and, and seek for the transcendental, to seek mm-hmm. for God, right? This, yeah. We all long for, for some sort of an order, as we mentioned before, with the chaos uh, order chaos order right yeah absolutely so just some resources i'd recommend and some of these i'd actually recommended to um elijah that i read in college where uh right here we have the echoes of eden by jerem bars excellent book and in that is a reflection on christianity literature and the arts and he he gives his case of what he means by the echoes of eden and then he talks about how we can judge the arts and then he gives examples he goes to lord of the rings he goes to Dun, 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 Harry Potter. Can you believe it? <laughs> um, you know, people just rolled over and freaked out on hearing that one. But that's okay. Um, and then you have Couldn't Shakespeare. Be worse than Macbeth, right? Right, right. <laughs> you have Shakespeare. You have Jane Austen and, and a lot of really interesting stuff. So you want to definitely pick up Echoes of Eden. And then Paul Gould, he was one of my professors in seminary. His book, Cultural Apologetics, Renewing the Christian Voice, Conscience in, in the Imagination in a Disenchanted World. So I definitely want to recommend these resources. You'll find great value in them and reading them. And it'll encourage you in your journey of really engaging the arts from a Christian worldview. So also, as it relates to Shakespeare, we want to um, 
maybe recommend them to read Shakespeare. So what are some good resources for our readers if they want to, or listeners if they want to read Shakespeare? Well, there are tons of prints of Shakespeare, but you want to make sure that you get something with some sort of um, basically... Co- commentary almost? Absolutely. I mean, because there are words and phrases that we just don't recognize today. And so yeah. um, when you're like, what on earth does that mean? And there's a little asterisk next to the, the word. You're like, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I highly recommend Norton Shakespeare, third edition. Norton Shakespeare, third edition. Now, this is, if you don't want a whole textbook of Shakespeare, don't get it absolutely, but there are... Um, you know, tons of resources on the internet for specific prints that show you look like we're going to explain to you what he's saying here. Yeah. There are a lot of them out there that, that don't and that just say the text alone. If you try to do that, you're not going to have fun. Yeah. I can tell you that from yeah. firsthand experience. But once you have those, you know, that translation per se, um, you can you can really understand what he's talking about there. So That's awesome. Well, Elijah, man, I, I really enjoyed this podcast today. And, and really, uh, to just to, to my listeners today, part of the reason why I did this podcast was um, in, in, a, in an effort to rightly engage the arts from a Christian worldview. You should be engaging the arts from a Christian worldview. And I'm excited to have you on the show more in the future because we've had a lot of other really cool conversations about film. And so as we think about Shakespeare and really the Christian artist, one of the premier Christian artists, uh, that's going to help us think about how should we as Christians engage the arts in the future. So maybe we'll get on here and talk about a few really cool films and critique some bad ones and <laughs> Um, that's always know, fun right? talk about some good ones yeah and that, that could be a lot of fun so man thank you so much for coming on today I really appreciate it well thank you Travis uh, thanks for having me um, I've always loved your podcast since you started it and I'm looking forward to more conversations so yes sir